Welcome to the Public Morality. In 1989, the Berlin Wall came down, bringing with it the end of the Cold War. In addition to America being perceived as the ideological victor of this international tug of war, this moment also ushered in new hope that democracy would spread globally. There would be a peace dividend where Western allies in particular would redirect policies away from Cold War concerns on the programs focused on social uplift. But this vaunted peace dividend never occurred, prompting considerations if in fact the fall of the Berlin Wall became a tangible symbol that overtly began the decline of American democracy. Joining me to discuss the Cold War and its influence on American democracy is Professor Sarah Snyder. Professor Snyder is a historian of US foreign relations at American University who specialized in the history of the Cold War. She is the author from Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy. Professor Sarah Snyder, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by having you uh, define the Cold War and its influences in your, from your perspective on the American narrative. Certainly. So I think there's really two key things about the Cold War. And the first is, is the modifier cold, right? I mean, this was supposed to be in contrast to the hot wars, the incredibly violent wars, wars like World War I, World War II. And so what people were trying to convey with the term Cold War was that this wasn't a sort of ongoing, incredibly heated military conflict. And I would say subsequent research, books like Paul Chamberlain's The Killing Fields have shown that even if the Cold War was peaceful in Europe, which had been previously the site of so much violence, it was still incredibly violent and devastating in many other parts of the world. So the, the coldness of it is actually a bit of a misnomer. And then the other part of it um, that I think is really important was that this was really a total conflict. This was a competition between the United States and the Soviet Union and eventually a number of Soviet allies that was not just a military competition. It was a cultural competition, an economic competition, a political competition, an ideological competition. And so it was really all encompassing, which is why I think we often think of the second half of the 20th century as being the Cold War, as opposed to the Cold War being one of a number of things that were sort of happening in the world in those years. So was the Cold War in effect the end of America's um, isolationist ethos that dominated the large part of the first half of the 20th century and, and the, the, the two world wars notwithstanding, but was that the end of America being dominated by isolationist ethos? So I would say just in response to your comment there about the two world wars notwithstanding, even there, the United States was a very reluctant entrant into both of those wars and waited for a considerable period of time, which I think does fit into this narrative that existed for a long time about American isolationism only ending with the horrors of, the, of World War II and a, a recognition that the decision to stay out of international institutions such as League of Nations might have been misguided. But one thing that I think is important to note is that there were many ways in which the United States and Americans were engaged with the world before 1945. Whether we look at 
American business interests, right? We have multinational corporations before the onset of the Cold War. We have American missionaries, American travelers. Um, the United States and its people were not cut off from the world in a way that I think some narratives have liked to suggest. Just thinking about both the uh, World Wars One and Two, the United States politically did things in World War One before Wilson formally announced uh, that said they were ostensibly on the side of the Allies. And we could certainly posit uh, Franklin Roosevelt with Lynn Lease and other things that he was ostensibly on the side of the Allies even before a formal entry in both wars. Would that be accurate? Yes, I would say that the idea of entering either of these wars was very unpopular domestically. And so each of these presidents, you know, uh, Wilson said that Americans should be neutral in word and in deed. And I think that in their hearts, some American leaders were not necessarily neutral. And I think, I think with Roosevelt, we can see this most clearly. Um, you know, they had an understanding of who was at fault in the war and whose system of government might threaten American interests more significantly. And so, you know, we might say they were leaning to one side, even if they didn't have the domestic political support to enter the war formally. So as you as you suggest, they were doing things to try and, you know, put their thumb on the scale to, to give an advantage to one side over the other, even if it was not acceptable to announce that the United States was going to enter the war at the early stages. And once the Cold War was established, we we were in total agreement. Would it be safe to conclude that it just ensured that we wouldn't have a president that did not have some sort of hawkish ethos, military speaking, going forward? That you had to be a cold warrior or perceived to be a cold warrior to some degree in order to be elected. I do think that the controversy around China becoming communist in 1949, in which President Truman was alleged to have lost China as if, as if a foreign country was the United States is to lose. That did really raise the stakes for subsequent presidents and other political leaders that being seen as being soft on communism could be an incredibly damaging charge. And so whether in their policies or in their campaign rhetoric, it was necessary for American presidents in the Cold War to declare that they were going to keep the United States and American interests safe from the threat of the spread of communism. And so, as I guess, really taking hold, maybe my time might be off, but it was really in the 50s, so it takes hold that communism becomes this thing, this not clearly defined didn't have a substantive definition. There was no delineation between, say, Karl Marx's Das Kapital and what was practiced in the Soviet Union. But the word just sort of became this catchphrase for an international boogeyman, sort of relating to one being soft on communism. Um, we in the United States just sort of filled in the blanks on what that meant. Yeah, I think that at times because of gen genuine fear and concern, and at times because it was politically expedient to label something a communist idea or a socialist idea or to, make, to label someone a communist sympathizer was a very effective way of undermining their agenda. Um, and so I think we do see that 
weaponized in many ways, particularly in the early Cold War when there was so much anxiety about Soviet capabilities and Soviet intentions. Is the cold, this Cold War era that we're talking about, and this, uh, do we also see sort of a formulation, at least philosophically, of America being on the side of, of human rights? And how would you assess America's commitment to human rights during this time period, 50s and 60s? And I, I guess we could start with the UN's Universal Declaration for Human Rights in 1948, but how would you assess that? So I would start by saying that this sort of connects back to the earlier point that I was making about the ideological component of the Cold War. And the United States and its allies wanted to define themselves as representing the free world, the world of liberal democracy, and to distinguish themselves from the Soviet Union, from China, and their allies. And so I think very much so, this was about a battle of ideas. And some of it connected with, I think, the history of of the United States and the ideals upon which the country was founded, but some of it was also about demonstrating the ways in which the United States was different because there was an audience for this competition. You know, this is an era in which you have enormous decolonization and each new country was being pressured to sort of align itself with the block of the purported free world, right? The first world or with the block of the communist world. And so everything that the United States and its allies did kind of reflected the values of their countries and potentially could influence a newly independent country to align on one side or the other. Now, in terms of the UN um, Universal Declaration for Human Rights, this is something that I think initially there was a lot of of sort of good feelings in the United States around. Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the key negotiators. Um, A lot of the negotiations for the document took place in the United States, but very shortly thereafter, um, this is an agreement that is voted on in 1948, um, very shortly thereafter as the Cold War begins, not just human rights, but the United Nations more broadly become incredibly unpopular in the United States. There's a concern that this is an institution that could undermine American sovereignty, that it could undermine American values. Um, And so much of this is because the structure that FDR put in place was supposed to have a number of, you know, he sort of thought of them as like the key policemen of the world. And one of them was the Soviet Union, the United States ally in World War II. But in the very short years following the end of World War II, all of a sudden, the Soviet Union was not a country that the United States wanted to have a veto over international relations. And so the UN, as well as the human rights bodies and sort of agreements that were being negotiated within it, became tainted in a, in a very significant way that I think we still see the legacy of, you know, now decades and decades later. The way uh, I'm taking this conversation, I mean, that the Cold War in, in one sense in, was, was an ideological tug of war that sort of debating the Soviet Union and the United States' sphere of influence. While the United States definitely um, saw themselves on, on the side of human rights throughout, um, so that realpolitik also demanded that that the United States country got in bed with some very unsavory characters. I'm thinking about the Shah of Iran, Augusto Pinochet, DM in South Vietnam, 
Could you talk about some of those considerations, those Cold War considerations that looking back may not have been the most moral decisions on, in terms of human rights, but it's something that this country felt it had to do for Cold War considerations? Absolutely. I and mean, this is the, the sort of central element of my, my most recent book, because I think what you have in the 1950s is what people talk about as a Cold War consensus. So whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or liberal or conservative, it seems like the specter of communism and the threat of the Soviet Union is so great that the country really needs to come together on foreign policy and that there's, there's really a single foreign policy, a policy of containment that um, presidents throughout the Cold War pursue regardless of their political affiliation. And what we see by the late 1960s is a growing recognition by some Americans, some in in the government, there's a lot of members of Congress who start to advance this argument, but a sense that in trying to defend the United States from communism, American leaders have gone too far, that they have sacrificed a sort of adherence to liberal American values and ideals to the aim of, of waging war against communism. And absolutely the the repressive leaders that you mentioned in your question, I think are some of the key examples of that and a sense that the United States shouldn't be supporting through military assistance, through economic assistance, through say high level visits to the United States, that it shouldn't be propping up and supporting leaders that were abusing their own citizens. And so that's where we really see um, a kind of renewed interest in human rights. Um, and you see activism by Americans outside the government people in the State Department, people in Congress who were saying, you know, it's not worth it to have defeated the Soviets if we've completely abandoned all of our liberal democratic ideals. And so I think this is, this combined with the war in Vietnam and ultimately the Watergate scandal lead to a sort of readjustment of what are the priorities for U.S. presidents and um, a greater assertion of congressional authority in foreign policy making, because there's a sense that having this, you know, people talk about the imperial presidency, having one person um, at the sort of pinnacle of power who might make choices that don't align with American values. Um, there's a sense that there should be greater democratization of foreign policy making and more and more diverse voices should be heard in this process. Well, first of all, uh, Professor Snyder, let me just say, as I've said to others, that here in the public morality, we are the home of the shameless plug. So in this, instead of saying this is the topic of my latest book, could you be so kind as to give us the title of this of, latest book? <laughs> of course. My latest book was From Selma to Moscow, How Human Rights Activists Transformed U.S. Foreign Policy, and it was published by Columbia University Press. Thank you. Thank you for that. But on, the, on that same thread, though, I'm, given America's uh, democratic idealism rhetorically, uh, along with what I mentioned earlier, so the realities of real politique during the Cold War, it seems that hypocrisy and uh, paradox were inevitable. So I'm, I'm thinking like I'm thinking of Kennedy's soaring rhetoric in his inaugural address. Um, and the gap between that and some of the Kennedy administration, although not alone, their implementation of policy. Talk about how that there was a paradox between our idealism and our the, and hypocrisy that the Cold War just naturally created, if you will. Absolutely. And I think part of this 
this paradox or hypocrisy, or, or maybe at least unfulfilled promise would be another way of thinking about it, is because the Cold War wasn't just a competition of hard power, but it was, as I mentioned, a competition over ideas, a competition for soft power. And so I think that partly there was therefore pressure on American policymakers to make great rhetorical commitments um, and to outline the ways in which they saw the United States and its allies as distinct from the East, but in ways that for a range of reasons were not necessarily fulfilled, whether in their foreign policy, for example, as you were mentioning, the support for repressive dictators overseas or domestically. Um, there are many ways in which the United States was not and is not living up to its purported ideals, even if presidents would talk about these ideals as ways of um, trying to highlight the differences between the United States and the Soviet Union. So I really think there's sort of multiple parts of it. And, you know, I, to some extent, I don't think that that's um, unique only to the Cold War, but I think it was, uh, it was very pronounced in certain decades um, and under certain presidents during the Cold War. I, I recently ran across a memo, White House memo from um, then National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy to President Kennedy, and it was a Gallup poll survey. And it talked about the importance, and the survey was October of 1961. It discussed the importance that the American people placed on the Cold War. And so given that how, how the Cold War dominated American foreign policy as well as American political discourse, it became easier for the nation to, to ignore glaring inconsistencies at home. And in this case, I'm referring to the burgeoning civil rights movement. Talk about the problems the movement caused for America's international pursuit, if you would. Certainly, um, I mean, there, there are two really brilliant books on this. Um, one by Mary Didziak called Cold War Civil Rights and one by Thomas Orsaman called The Cold War and the Color Line. And both of them for the first time really show how American political leaders because of the Cold War and because as I mentioned earlier, um, they were American political leaders were constantly trying to win over newly independent countries by and large on the African and Asian continents. The images that were being transmitted around the world of civil rights protesters being harassed, being attacked by dogs, being shot at with water cannons, really undermined the image that they were trying to project of a place in which rights were respected and citizens were respected. And so, you know, they showed that the potential international ramifications, essentially that the United States might lose ground in the Cold War, um, really pushed American political leaders, people like Eisenhower or Kennedy, to take steps that they might not otherwise have done in support of civil rights. And so I think this is an, an important instance in which the fact that, and, and some of this is about changes in communications technology, right? You know, if, if we were relying upon telegram reports um, to be transmitted by, published by in a newspaper, you know, three days later, it would be very different than people around the world being able to watch on their television screens, these images of young children being attacked as they tried to integrate a new school, um, that, that this really put pressure on American political leaders. 
And specifically, that televised confirmation, such, such as the Birmingham campaign, which you just referenced with Bull Connor and uh, his police dogs, became invaluable allies, along with Cold War considerations, that, that ultimately led to the 64, and 64, um, 64 uh, Civil Rights Act and 65 Voting Rights Act. One could posit that the Cold War gave an unintended assist to not only the civil rights movement, but also helping the nation find its moral voice domestically, because in that decade, it wasn't just civil rights. It was, you know, other movements as well that started to galvanize around this. And I guess, did that sort of put pressure uh, on the United States to be a little more tolerable and expand civil liberties because of the Cold War, do you think? So I think I have a few comments in response to that question. And the first one is that, you know, you, you talked about the assist the Cold War might have offered. I think that the Cold War probably affected, affected the pace and maybe the timing of some changes. Um, but I don't want to in any way um, undermine the agency of the people in the United States who were protesting, who were making these claims, who were doing the really courageous work. Um, I think the spotlight that the Cold War provided might have moved things um, at a different pace, but I, I don't know that it that we should see it as, as responsible for some of these legislative achievements. In terms of clarifying sort of um, America's moral conscience, I do think that, that the civil rights movement, that you know, all of these social movements of the 1960s are about Americans saying that the government policies are not fulfilling their needs. And um, so I think that it was incredibly significant. And I think partially you could think about that as being connected to a reduction in the threat that Americans perceived in the mid to late 1960s from the Soviet Union um, in that there's sort of two processes going on, right? I talked about how in the 1950s, the threat was so great that they were willing to come together under this Cold War consensus. I think one reason that the Cold War consensus breaks down is not just people pushing from below saying, this is not serving our interests and it's not in line with American democratic values and ideals, but I think it's also that sort of from the top, there's a bit of a fracturing, right? I mean, if, if Richard Nixon can go to China or Henry Kissinger can negotiate with, with Soviet officials, are the Soviets so scary that we have to be, you know, overlooking the rights of our citizens domestically? And so I think there's two processes that are really going on in the late 1960s and early 1970s. I think you're absolutely right. I, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that the Cold War was leading the charge that gave civil rights. But I do recall when I interviewed Jack O'Dell, who was very integral to the civil rights movement, in terms of voter registration of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he said something I thought was so profound. He said that the problem they had at the time with President Kennedy was that President Kennedy could go to Berlin, talk about his famous Ishbein Berliner speech. He could go to Berlin, and this is what Jack said, roughly two blocks from where Hitler worked, tell everyone there he was a Berliner, but there was nowhere in America that Kennedy would dare go and say that he was a Negro. So that was sort of the problem they had with Kennedy, which I thought was a was a profound, very profound 
observation. So the, the, the gist of my question was to suggest that the Cold War gave Kennedy, for example, who, who, who introduced, initially introduced the civil rights uh, bill, an, an uncomfortable push. Because if you think of January 63, uh, Kennedy was trying to stay on the safe, comfortable middle as he perceived it. But the Cold War creates this uncomfortable push to do the right thing for geopolitical reasons. I, I completely agree with that. Um, I think Eisenhower and Kennedy both felt the pressure of the international audience. Kennedy's assassination is often pointed to as a sort of key catalyst for the achievement of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And I don't know if the Cold War would have been sufficient without such a traumatizing event like that and the ability of Johnson to sort of frame supporting this legislation as sort of securing Kennedy's legacy. In foreign policy, people debate a lot about what would have happened regarding U.S. intervention in Vietnam if Kennedy had lived. And I think it's it's a, a similarly interesting thought exercise about would, have, would there have been sufficient momentum in Kennedy's presidency to achieve that legislation um, without the kind of the really galvanizing trauma of his assassination. Essentially, would the Cold War pressure have been sufficient? I'm not sure. And as you sort of mentioned earlier, we certainly don't want to minimize the legislative genius of, of Lyndon Johnson to get that legislation through, because there was still a lot of pushback in, in, in 64 to, to make that 64 Civil Rights Act happen. We sort of alluded to this earlier. In addition to the civil rights movement, other grassroots efforts took hold in the 1960s. We talked about this earlier, but there was the free speech movement, anti-Vietnam protests, second wave feminism, United Farm Workers. And in each of these, to some degree, the pushback included charges of a communist influence as examples of the Cold War, using the Cold War sort of tamp down the inconsistencies within the American democracy. How, how do you see that? And would that be an accurate assessment in your view? Absolutely. I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier that in the, the 1950s, because of the fear of communism, that was a charge that was weaponized. And, you know, we saw this being utilized against leaders in the civil rights movement. And absolutely, then I think because of the perceived success of some of that, of, of sort of unfairly undermining that agenda by suggesting that its leaders were, were not just communist sympathizers, but maybe being directed by sort of um, external influence, that that was seen as an effective way to undermine other agendas that were not necessarily al aligned with the U.S. government. I think over time, as I was mentioning, as, as the Soviet Union and its allies began to seem less threatening, that charge was not as effective. But I think that for Americans of a number of generations, it remains a very powerful concern. And I think we can see whether it's in the talk about Obamacare or other social programs in the United States that the idea that programs are socialist or inspired by foreign governments, it, you know, continues to be salient today. Actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Affordable Care Act because that was sort of my thinking when I asked the earlier question that these things aren't defined. They're just thrown out as sort of catchphrases. So, you know, socialism without really any kind of definition becomes this sort of boogeyman and a reason to oppose it just on the face of it without really 
investigating what those things mean. And it isn't, isn't that an influence maybe indirectly of the Cold War, post-Cold War period? I do think so. I think, I think partially it's about the application of theories to real world contexts. And so Americans would look at say, the violence in the Soviet Union in the 1930s as, as Stalin went after his political enemies and say, oh, therefore a communist party or a socialist system must be violent or it must repress its citizens' rights. And there was therefore less engagement with the ideas and the theories, um, as you were suggesting, you know, reading the original writings and more looking at its expression in the Soviet Union, in Eastern European countries, the People's Republic of China, et cetera, and, and kind of reducing a possible economic or political system to its current expressions, which didn't necessarily always reflect well. Let's fast forward um, to, to 1989 and the fall uh, of the Berlin Wall. And many believed uh, in the United States that the fall of the Berlin Wall would create a peace dividend. Western allies in particular would redirect policies away from Cold War concerns. Could you talk about that period and why do you believe that the peace dividend failed to materialize in the manner that especially many human rights advocates had hoped for? Certainly. So I think there's a few things that happened. I mean, the sort of years from 1989 to 1991 were filled with incredible dramatic change, joy, um, hope. I mean, there was a belief that, you know, we were really on the cusp of a new, a new world, right? Francis Fukuyama talked about the end of history. George H.W. Bush talked about a new world order. And I think the reasons that some people's hopes there were dashed I mean, one, you talked about the peace dividend and there was a, a hope that the United States and its allies would be able to divert the economic resources that they had been spending on military defense, say to domestic social programs at home. And I think that at least on that point, I think there were sort of two things at work. One was that even though the Soviet Union was no longer in existence and it's successor states and other states didn't present a significant military threat to the United States, all of a sudden the United States discovered that there were new threats, whether it was ethnic cleansing happening as Yugoslavia broke up or later the threats of international terrorism. But I think also, you know, Eisenhower warned about this in his farewell address and the military industrial complex was and is an incredibly strong institution in the United States. And I think that not everyone was necessarily supportive of the idea that the United States would step back so much from its strong and robust military. The other point, you know, you said, why might human rights not have been sort of the central focus of US foreign policy in the way that, that some observers might have hoped for? And I think part of that is about the United States struggling to find its way in a post-Cold War world. There, there was no longer a kind of organizing principle for US foreign policy and human rights could have presented one alternative, but almost immediately with the outbreak of conflict in Yugoslavia, 
it was clear that championing human rights could be dangerous, it could be costly, um, it wasn't something that could just be done rhetorically. The United States would have to devote resources to doing that. And I think because of the idea that there should have been a peace dividend and the United States should be able to step back from its commitments, there wasn't necessarily always the political will to do that. And then I think, you know, it's only a short period later, you really have these sort of, a colleague of mine wrote a book between 11-9, which is the day the Berlin Wall fell, and 9-11, you know, it's a very short window in which kind of the organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy is up for grabs. Um, and with 9-11, in many ways, the threat of terrorism just slots into or replaces the threat from communism. And again, there's, there's a new priority that supersedes American commitment to human rights in many respects. Well, one of my beliefs uh, that once the founders signed the Declaration of Independence to secede from Great Britain, they were still dominated, in my opinion, by a colonial mindset. So, you, so you, you, even though we don't want to be part of Britain, you still see the fledgling United States, even very early on, operating with, you know, trying to identify its spheres of influence much, you know, like the British Empire. And, I, and I'm wondering, from your perspective, did we apply similar to the Cold War, that even though the Cold War was over, uh, American politics was still dominated by a Cold War mindset. Berlin Wall comes down, now we've got to find another enemy. Is that, you know, new enemies? I mean, nothing could quite galvanize, but did we have a similar approach post-Cold War in your view? I do think that having having an enemy, you know, it, it clarifies things. It's a way that identity is formed. You have a something on the outside that people on the inside can unite against. And so I think that's part of why you see so much discussion today about, is there a new Cold War with China? Was the Cold War really, did it really end? Do we have a new Cold War with Russia? Because there's this popular narrative that the United States successfully waged the Cold War and won. And so if you see this as a positive narrative for US power, then I think you want to apply that to other conflicts in the hope that the United States could be similarly successful, say, in its competition with China today or with Russia. And so I, I do think that the Cold War despite, as I mentioned at the beginning, how violent it was um, within the American popular imagination, this is a something that the United States did effectively. And so I think that there continues to be a sense that um, if the United States could just identify its next Cold War, its next Cold War adversary, it could apply many of the tactics that are perceived as are perceived as having been effective against this new adversary, and that would help clarify American foreign policy. So with that said, going back to 1989, when you think of the fall of the Berlin Wall, was this also, in your view, the beginning of the decline of American democracy with January 6th sort of being the tangible apex thus far? But, but something that was decades in the making, not just limited to um, the uh, behavior of the previous president. Well, I com I completely agree that 
or or believe that this was something that was decades in the making and and was not only tied to the behavior of the previous president. I guess I'm I'm not as convinced by 1989 as the beginning of the decline of American democracy. I mean, a tangible only like a tangible marker is all I mean, is all I meant by that. Yeah, I guess I'm I see it maybe as a moment in which Americans were very conscious about democracy because all of the sudden democracy was spreading in so many places around the world and there was incredible excitement about the freedoms that the citizens in places like Czechoslovakia or Poland were going to be able to enjoy. But I think if we look at the strains, you know, whether it's a belief in conspiracy theories or white supremacy, um, that play into the insurrection on January 6th, I think that they long predated the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so maybe that was more of a, a kind of burst of enthusiasm for democracy rather than a high point from which a decline began. Well, to that extent, taking your last point, could we, could we look at the Cold War as being something that falsely supported the notions of democracy and it uh, uh, inevitably became a, a false bottom, if you would, that if you take the Cold War uh, away from, say, what, 45 to 89, some of the problems that America was facing would have been more apparent and without that common enemy to serve as that sort of, you know, baseline these things might have quickened American democracy's um, challenges. I agree with that formulation. I mean, I think there was such a focus on external adversaries and you know, even just thinking about the, the costs and the sort of political will involved in the construction of the network of overseas bases that the United States developed in the early Cold War, there was very little or relatively less attention on domestic issues and domestic problems because there was a sense that, you know, this isn't just an external adversary, but an adversary that could destroy the country and indeed potentially the entire world if nuclear war was to break out. And so when you have um, a threat of that order, right, the potential threat to all human life on the earth as we know it, I think it, that really both genuinely and at times, I think in a kind of cynical manipulated way, put the emphasis on external threats, foreign policy, and not on really um, engaging with the structural issues in the United States and with many issues that I think were effectively minimized because of, of the purported greater threat that the Soviet Union and the Cold War presented. And, and even with, with that, domestically, you had a number of people that may not have cared one way or other about the Cold War, but the Cold War, with the military buildup, created lots of jobs, lots of bases here in the United States where people with, say, high school educations could get, you know, well-paying jobs, buy a home, provide for their family. And so the end of the Cold War takes some of that away, and I guess sort of Ironically, the many of these um, the military industrial complex become emboldened in communities. And so now you have a, a, a place where some of these communities that depend on these military, these um, defense contract jobs, spending is up 
for defense even beyond Cold War levels? Well, I think some of that has to be tied to our massive overseas deployments over the last decades. But I agree with you, and this was the the point that I was making earlier about why we didn't get the peace dividend, that there were entrenched interests who didn't want such a significant scale back, whether it's the um, defense contracting companies or congressional districts in which military bases exist. I mean, there are many people who have interests in continuing um, a sort of robust American military capability. To bring this to even a contemporary moment, I I was struck um, having read Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's um, full opinion on overturning Roe versus Wade. I was struck by his historical analysis that abortion was not deeply rooted in the nation's history. And that said, if, if, if if that even has a grain of truth, then is it not to um, also conclude that nothing that we've done, especially in the 1960s, some of the things we talked about earlier, second wave feminism, uh, free speech movement, none of these things are, are, are deeply rooted uh, in the nation's history. And so what might, the, what might American democracy look like if there were no Cold War, if we're, gonna, if we're only going to look at things that can be subjectively viewed as deeply rooted in the nation's history? Well, I mean, this is definitely outside my area of expertise, but I will say the American Historical Association submitted an amicus brief on this and and disagrees with the interpretation that Justice Alito put forth in his opinion. Right. And I'm I'm just saying, though, but right, I understand that. I I, I guess I'm, I'm just saying that everything we do, and so if the Cold War didn't happen, we might could say that you know, civil rights movement was not deeply rooted, and and the the descendants of civil rights, anti-Vietnam, free speech, you know, uh, feminism in that in that time period is not deeply rooted. So we could have ignored it, but but the Cold War has a sort of strange way of not letting us ignore it because it, we get to save face with other nations in in that in that context. I mean, I think you know this is clearly about the way that people interpret the constitution and other documents like it. You know, for example, the the UN's Universal Declaration of Human Rights. My belief is that these are are documents that are intended to guide us as we confront new situations that could not have been previously anticipated rather than sort of chains that are meant to keep us in place um, and not grow and progress. Professor Sarah Snyder, American University, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today on, on The Public Morality. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. 
And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Rally at their studios. The Pullman Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Rally, I'm Byron Williams.